You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. The other day, one of our producers, Annalisa Nielsen, sent me a poem by New York author Jada Jones. The poem is called Mayday, Mayday. I called Jada and asked them to read it for us. Mayday, Mayday. Here are some photos from last summer, when we were still allowed to go places, when we still flew like little gods on big planes, when country music stars wrote sad songs to Delta Airlines about lost luggage and broken guitars, when we dragged our stuffed suitcases, rolled zigzag over other countries' uncracked cement, laughed that the few lonely gray miles surrounding this airport look exactly the same as the few lonely gray miles surrounding every other airport we've ever burned through. Here are some photos from last summer. Here's a giraffe living the good life in a zoo without glass windows or ceilings. Free-range mother just chewing on the open-air leaves of trees, framed next to stills of museum exhibits, halls packed full of art and people milling in close intersections, as crowded and flush with bodies as Shibuya Crossing at 8 a.m. Thursday, Japan Standard Time. Here are piers, pagodas, parking lots, public pools, playgrounds, and Passover seders, and the Brooklyn Bridge and a Bed-Stuy bodega. You know, some of those places that held us each spring, all of the places that held us together. Here's a throwback to that Thursday. You remember that Thursday, when we were all at the beach or on our way to the beach or coming back from the beach or going to the beach again. When we were all together on the subway, fingers touching the maypole of the subway car pole, twisting past strangers, dancing to get into or out of the car before it pulled at last with a scream of the tracks, away, away from the overflowing station. It's so beautiful. I love it. Thank you. Jada wrote the poem back in May, when New York was in its second full month of quarantine. They saw a post online about going to the zoo and reminded them of all the things they've lost during the pandemic. My wife and I had planned, um, on I think it was March 11th, we were going to be going to Japan um, with my mom. And we made the decision, we were like, okay, maybe that's not going to happen. We're going to have to postpone that. And then a few days later, it was like, oh, we would have had to <laughs> either return or, um, you know, or just be staying in Japan for an <laughs> undisclosed amount of time. Um, so that was like the first gut punch of it. But I think as as time progressed, it was like, oh, no, there are just all of these things that we take for granted about our daily life that now are going to be irrevocably changed, like going to a museum or like having a dinner party <laughs> or just like the most basic, simple things that you take for granted that when they disappear, your equilibrium is totally thrown. Like, you know what I miss? I miss being able to meet up with friends and just hug them without any hesitation or awkward dancing around each other. Like, are you okay with it? Are we doing the elbow thing? I just miss leaning in for the hug without thinking twice about it. Weirdly, because I don't necessarily miss it or want to go back to it. It's like my daily commute into work. Like there was something very like... It's it stapled my day together. It it clearly defined the regions of my day, so that it was like there was like before work, and then commute, and then work, and then commute, and then after work. And I I think that's one of the things that I do miss, just like the basic rhythm 
of the day and like how I was able to segment the day and be a different person for those different parts of the day. Whereas now it's just all together, but it's also you're all together alone as opposed to like all together with everybody else. And the worst part about losing these things is that there's no rule book for dealing with the loss. We can't just call up people who are alive during the Spanish flu pandemic and ask them how they got through it. And frankly, I don't have any strategies. What was, what were you hoping that this poem would bring to people who are reading it, who are kind of thinking about all the things that they miss? That's a, it's a good question. I don't know. I, you know, I think one of the things too, that I was struggling with back in May um, was that like, there were some people who immediately were like, okay, everything has changed and we're going to take this really seriously. And then some people who sort of refused to, and still possibly refused to look at, at the world in a different way. Um, you know, and, and I think with this poem, it was mostly just like, these are all things that we have done, but we like have to reframe and reconsider and look at in a different way now, because it definitely has changed and hope like, but you know, those things are still there and we will be able to return to them also just maybe not as, as soon as we hoped. Today, we've got a story about coping with loss and the grief that follows. But more specifically, how we deal with loss and grief when the circumstances surrounding it are exceptional. Allow me to show you something. She's Stephanie Phillips, and this is Paradigm. This one comes from Emily Morantz, and it's one that's close to her heart. While I was growing up, every Saturday morning was spent in my grandmother's apartment in Winnipeg. As kids, me and my cousins would eat buttered noodles while we watched SpongeBob. But as I got older, I was invited to sit at the big wooden dining table with my mom, my aunt, and my grandma, Mare. They alternated between gossiping and bickering as I looked on, meticulously removing the raisins from my cinnamon bun. I never had a sister, but I did have this. A legacy of women with strong personalities, strong opinions, and even stronger coffee. Flash forward a few years. I'm standing in the same familiar apartment with those same people, but everything is different. Less than 24 hours prior, I was pacing back and forth in the echoey stairwell next to my office in Vancouver on a phone call with my entire family. My parents are practical people, so the contents of the conversation were pretty straightforward. First of all, your beloved Grandma Mare, who has been battling with a slow-moving but persistent case of small cell carcinoma for almost six years, is about to die Second, she was supposed to die this morning. With the assistance of a doctor, an especially formulated cocktail of lethal drugs. But she cancelled her appointment at the last second. And finally, she doesn't want you to know. Any of it. So I flew home to see her one more time. And there she was, lying on the couch where I used to watch cartoons. 
She was napping, which is what she did most of the time in those days, so I could stare at her without interruption. She was so thin, I could see her heartbeat in her chest. Eventually, she woke up and I began the impossible task of seeming normal, of gossiping and bickering and drinking coffee and trying to ignore the way she cradled her arm, which had been rendered unusable and actively rotting by her illness, or the droppers full of liquid fentanyl that she accepted from my uncle with her tongue stuck out like a baby bird. A week later, I would return on equally short notice. She had decided she was ready, and so she was gone. My grandmother wasn't the first family member of mine to die in my lifetime. She wasn't even the first one to die of cancer. But this death was different. She didn't succumb to her illness. In the end, she went with it willingly. When my grandmother left this world at 9 o'clock a.m. on a tepid March day in 2018, she did it on her own terms. She did it with medical assistance. Medical assistance in dying, or what you might know as assisted suicide, is a procedure in which a person elects to have a specially trained doctor give them a lethal dose of medication so that they can die with minimal suffering. In order to qualify in Canada, you must have, among other things, a grievous and irremediable medical condition, your death must be reasonably foreseeable, and you have to be mentally competent to consent at the time of death. Basically, you have to be sick, really sick, and you have to make the choice for yourself. Since the federal government legalized medical assistance in dying, which is often abbreviated to MAID, in 2016, more than 13,000 Canadians have chosen to use it to end their lives. Whenever it comes up in the media, there's a lot of talk about independence, reducing suffering, and regaining control. But ever since I watched my grandma go through what she did, I felt sort of removed from that public story. When people talk about MAID, they talk about controversy or legislation or human rights. And all of those things are important, but there's something missing from the conversation. When people talk about medical assistance in dying, they almost never talk about grief. At the tone, please record your message. When you have finished recording, you may hang up or press 1 for more options. Hi, Sarah, it's me. Um, just reporting in. Home, home care did come. Very, very nice woman, actually. Much, like, much more refined than the other people who have come, which is, I think, an elitist thing to say, but forgive me. Uh, anyway, she came. We didn't stay long. She just helped me out with a shower and picked up, you know, cleaned up after uh, ourselves and left. But it was just fine. We didn't. Uh, so anyway, they came and it was good. And so I'm reporting in. And I spoke to Josie. So I think that's all. Talk to you later. Bye. To her loved ones, she was Mare, 
but she was born Marilyn Lee Cohen in Winnipeg, Manitoba in 1935. She lived with her parents, Edith and Sydney, in a small house in the North End, which was the epicenter of the city's Jewish community at the time. Despite the grim historic moments that were playing out in the background, she had a happy childhood. I remember asking her once when I was a kid what it was like to grow up during the Holocaust. She replied, I didn't really think about it. She was fierce. When she graduated high school, she made the radical decision to move to Montreal for university, but hated school and dropped out to run off to New York City in 1955. She worked as a receptionist and learned to smudge black eyeliner around her blue eyes. I used to love hearing about that when I was a kid. She was eventually dragged home and finally, in 1958, she got married and had three kids in rapid succession. But I wasn't there for any of this. So here's my mom, Sherry. So my parents were very unhappy. Um, my mother often said she was the last of her friends to get married. And she was 22 when she got married. My father was a Holocaust survivor from Romania, extremely handsome and charming, and I think swept her off her feet. But it wasn't a good match in many ways. And they were not, we didn't have like a good family life with them. Just a quick note, my mom was recovering from throat surgery when we recorded, so that's why her voice might sound a little strange. Anyway, the marriage wasn't great. But Mare loved having babies. It was once the kids grew up that things started to become complicated. Her husband, Larry, was increasingly absent, leaving for weeks at a time on work trips. She began to look for escapes of her own. Well, and I think that my brother and sister would agree with this. Like, all three of us. And, you know, children see the world in a certain way. But all three of us felt like that we were somehow alone. So his escape was his work and his travel for his business. And my mother's escape was the bridge club and her bridge friends. And she also became, in the 60s, very enamored of the feminist movement and went back to school. That was another thing, that she went back to school. After dropping out in her youth, Mare went back to school and got a degree in economics and urban studies, a field she would work in for the rest of her life. But this self-improvement came at the expense of her children. That is, until 1976. First, Mare's mother, Edith, who suffered from what was then called manic depressive disorder, committed suicide. Revenue Canada started investigating Larry's business for failing to properly declare its imported products. They eventually fined him so heavily that he went bankrupt. With all the money gone, the marriage finally disintegrated. And as if all that weren't enough, Mare's middle child, Robert, was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma at the age of 17. Whatever she had to do to get to the next day, she did. So at the time she would have been in her early 40s, three kids, mother kills herself, um, marriage disintegrates, somewhat absentee father initially, 
bankruptcy, losing her house, living in co-op housing because she couldn't afford anything else, scraping your by for everything. You have to be awfully strong not to crack. So she knew she was strong and she may not have understood some of the impact of her behavior, but she was very focused on surviving and doing what she had to do to survive. One thing she really held on to is that with all of that stuff raining down on us, she was always proud of the fact that we might have bent, but we never broke, and we stayed a family. We stayed connected and felt strongly about each other and wanted to be together, no matter what. Because she was my grandmother, I never saw or understood any of this. But reporting this story made me understand how many layers she had, just how many versions of her there had been before she became mine. My favorite description of her came from my uncle Howard, my grandma's brother. Like my mom, he was there with her for a lot of what was going on towards the end of her life. He was closer to her than anyone. You know, it's funny though, because I, uh, people say this, and I just took it for granted, but like she carved out a, a whole new uh, life and identity for herself. Yeah. Which um, is quite remarkable when you think about it. Mm-hmm. But as a member, as, as a, it, it sort of, because it evolved through time, I never thought about it. It was just, yeah. It just happened. It, was, it just was happening. So, Becoming a professional and confident, mostly confident person was new, but it just sort of happened gradually, so you don't, uh, you're not as aware of it. Hi, Sherry. Uh, I understand that you don't have your uh, cell phone with you. I thought I'd try your iPad or whatever. So I'll try you on FaceTime. Otherwise, just know that 530 is fine with, with me. It's uh at the bookstore. So I'll either talk to you or see you later. Bye. Paradigm will be right back after this quick break. And I will say that for myself and I think everybody else on the team, that it is some of the most fulfilling and gratifying work I've done in my 30 years of medicine. This is Dr. Kim Weeb. She's the lead for Manitoba's dedicated MAID team, which has helped to conduct more than 500 assisted deaths since its establishment in 2016. One of them was my grandmother's. I had never really thought about assisted dying. I had not followed the court case. Mm. I had not, like, which is very interesting now, given where I'm at. Um, when I stopped to think about it, I thought it was important for people to have the option. I believe in people having the right to choose. Um, but uh, when it came down to me actually actively participating, I hesitated a bit. I was like, oh, I'm not sure. I didn't sign up for that. And a lot of us kind of with that first request were like, oh, we didn't sign up to be on the front line, so to speak. But I then thought to myself of having an illness like ALS, being trapped in my body, unable to swallow, you know, unable to breathe, you know, kind of suffocating, choking, that type of thing. So I thought, well, if I 
going to someday ask somebody to help me die and I'm in a position to help people now, perhaps it's my duty to explore that. I should mention that while Kim does work for Shared Health Manitoba, she wasn't representing them directly in this conversation. Anyway, considering the complexity of the issue, the procedure for accessing MAID in Manitoba is actually fairly straightforward. You reach out to the MAID team and they review your medical records to make sure that you're eligible. Then, two teams made up of a different doctor, nurse, and social worker conduct two independent reviews. Basically, an interview about why you think it's your time to die. According to Kim, most of the people she talks to have one of two reasons for wanting to use MAID, neither of which have anything to do with physical pain. It's the inability to live the life that they want to live. Um, And often that relates to being dependent on others, which for a lot of people... That, that they just do not like that, that, mm-hmm. that being dependent on other people, particularly for toileting, yeah. is kind of a line in the sand. And then the other main reason that we hear is control. It's about control and people, mm-hmm. um, you know, feeling like they have no control over their illness. And this is their way of taking some control back and not wanting their illness to take them to the bitter end. People talk about not wanting to linger at the end of life, not wanting a prolonged kind of death not wanting to be a burden on their family members. Kim also asks her patients if there's anything that would change their mind about accessing MAID. Most people answer that question by saying um, no, short of a cure. Yeah. If you could take away my cancer, take away my LS, take away my heart failure. Um, And most people say, I don't want to die. I am dying. Mm -hmm. And you can't change that. Nobody can change that. Given that I'm going to die, I want some control. I want some say over how and when that's going to happen. But I'd rather not be dying. I'd rather not be talking to you. I'd rather not be sick. Um, Which to me, I'm often asked how this differs from suicide. And that to me is exactly how it differs from suicide, is that these people don't want to die. Mm -hmm. Um, But that they're not choosing to live or die. That choice has already been taken away from them. Kim says that most families are on board with the procedure. They're not happy to be losing their loved one, of course, but they understand where the request is coming from. Most people describe the whole experience as surreal. When we're arranging the actual death, we um, say to families that it's going to be a really weird time. Like those, you know, days or hours before, Um, And we say, you know, the patients often tell us they've had the best sleep of their life the Mm -hmm. night before. Families haven't slept a week. In 2012, my grandma Mare was diagnosed with an aggressive form of lung cancer after she broke her arm opening a jar of pickled beets. The cancer had metastasized, and there was a massive tumor right at the point where the bone snapped. Shortly after that, she asked my mom if she would help her commit suicide. When is the first time that she mentioned interest in assisted death? Okay, well, when she got diagnosed, like when the arm broke, and when she was recovering at home from the fractured arm and the surgery, and we were getting our heads around 
the small cell carcinoma. And I had, I don't think she looked stuff up. I think part of her way of protecting herself was not to learn anymore. And she had to about what this type of cancer was and what the prognosis was. Um, although she did ask every single time, how long do I have? How long do I have? Um, but in that initial period, she asked me if I would help her kill herself, um, if I would give her the pills and be there. And I said, I can't do that. How did it make you feel when she asked you that? Uh, terrible, because I knew what she was talking about. And she would say about not wanting to suffer like that, not wanting, like not before this thing, but you know, if anything really terrible happened to her, not wanting to suffer like that and not wanting the people she loved to see her like that. So when she said that, I wasn't surprised, but I did say it's not legal I can't give you those pills. I'm a lawyer. I can't do something that I know is against the law if I want to keep practicing law. And I remember thinking, if you really want to do this, nobody needs to know that you're doing it. So my mom said no, and the topic didn't come up again for years. Critics of MAID will often gesture to the horrors of suicide as a point against the practice. My mom thought maybe that was what got in her way. The thought of doing to her own children what her own mother had done to her. She knew what the effect on her was and what her mother did, which was decide all by herself that her life was going to end, tell nobody and be alone, even though my grandfather was asleep beside her. That, had, that was terribly traumatic for my mom. And I think she didn't want to do that to us. So she wanted one of us to help her. So I said no. And I, I couldn't have done that. But I did think that she was going to do it. I did think that it was possible that I would find her in her bed one day, just like she found her mom. But there was another problem. Mara also couldn't put my mom and her sister Lori through another slow, painful march towards death from cancer. Remember my Uncle Rob? He managed to fight off cancer as a teenager, but relapsed in his mid-40s. He had just had a son with his partner at the time, Tammy. The lymphoma came back just in time to break up a new family. So, want to talk about Uncle Rob? <laughs> Rob died when I was nine, so my memory of him is fuzzy. But if there's anything I know for sure, it's that he was stubborn. That and he was Grandma Mare's favorite. 
So Mare was a mother bear trying her best to protect her cub, but powerless in the face of this horrible thing. She was living every parent's nightmare, and she didn't have any control. And it turned out neither did Rob. You know, we used to bring him books and magazines and newspapers and stuff to keep him busy. And, you know, we had a TV there and all that. And he just stopped looking at anything except the clock. There was a clock to the right of his bed. And he would just sit there and stare at the clock. You could be talking to him and he would not look at you. He would just look at the clock. Eventually, Rob contracted a fungal infection in his lungs that sent him to the medical ICU. He was told he would be staying overnight. Tammy was the only one there when it happened. He stopped breathing. In the panic that ensued, he was intubated, despite the fact that my mom had helped him to draft a healthcare directive that very clearly stated that he really, really didn't want that. All he wanted was to die in as natural a way as possible. But that wasn't what he got. Instead, his life was extended against his will while his family was forced to quibble over what to do. Tammy, as Rob's partner, had the final say, but she couldn't make the decision without Mare's approval. She wanted to do what she knew Rob wanted, to remove the ventilator. But Mare just couldn't. It went on for hours. She couldn't lose her son. She was in shock. I'm trying to get her head around it. Trying to struggle between what he said he wanted, what she agreed with, and the reality of following through with it and what that meant. Finally, the decision was made. He was unhooked from the ventilator around 2 a.m., From there, it took three hours for him to stop breathing on his own. When he was initially intubated, he had desperately tried to unhook himself in the panic. So this time, they decided to sedate him. So he was completely out of it, peaceful, like sleeping. His breathing became slower and slower until... Right before he took his very last breath, his eyes opened, and Grandma Mirror was right in front of his face. <clears throat> so his eyes were wide open, and Mirror was looking right into his eyes. So it's like the first person he ever really saw was her. And the last person he ever saw was her. There's eyes to open like he must have known somewhere in his midpoint that this was the end. So it was like the most, it was so terrible, but it was so profound. And I, I was so glad that he opened his eyes to look at her, that she 
The morning my grandma died, I was lying in bed watching YouTube cooking videos, completely oblivious. I knew I had to ask Kim, the doctor who performed the maid procedure, what it was like in the apartment that day. But I didn't even end up having to bring it up myself. Do, do you, has your mom shared with you kind of what happened that day that your grandma died? Um, I have like broad strokes. I was going to ask sort of what your, how much of that you could recount to me. Well, because your grandma um, was, she initially said that the only person that she was going to tell uh, was your uncle yeah. about the about the date. And then my understanding is the day before she talked to your uncle and they agreed that your mom and your aunt should know. Yeah. And so they did tell them that it was happening the next day, but not what time it was happening. Mm -hmm. And the agreement was that your uncle would call after the fact and let them know that, that your grandma had died. So, so it was just your uncle that was there. Yeah. Um, and his partner was nearby. Mm -hmm. uh, so everybody knew it was happening that day, but didn't know kind of uh, when. Uh, and your grandma was in her, her bedroom, um, and uh, after she died, so your uncle actually wasn't in the, in the room. Mm -hmm. So it was just myself and the nurse w with your grandma. And we had a lovely conversation uh, to the point where <laughs> she said, you probably think I've changed my mind because I keep talking, right? <laughs> and, uh, and I'm like, no, that's fine, what, you know? And uh, so then, uh, Eventually, she was ready, and she lay down in her bed and and um, and died. And then your uncle came in. He had bought um, beautiful flowers and kind of arranged her in the bed and put the flowers on. I'm going to get teary talking about it. Um, and and then he he called. He let to, while we were still there. Hearing about all this stuff, I didn't know how to feel. Because I didn't find out about my grandma's decision to use maid until the very last second, I never really had the time to think about what it meant. What does it mean to know the day that you will lose your loved one? To think about it and start to grieve before that person is even gone. What do you do with that time? And it's a different type of death. And so for if family members have had other experiences of death, and I don't know how much experience you've had with death, but... Most people that are dying from a terminal illness go through a phase, they get weaker and weaker and weaker, they're sleeping more and more, they become bedridden, um, and then the final days they're usually unconscious. Yeah. Um, or in and out of consciousness, often confused, often, um, so, and then, you know, they go through a phase where they're, they're in a deep coma and their breathing might change and that type of thing. So, Maid deaths are very different. The patient is awake. They're 
they're sometimes sitting up in a chair. They're dressed in regular clothes. Sometimes they've had, you know, we've they've had breakfast that morning. So it can be a bit jarring, I think, yeah. for family members to have, like your grandma was in the living room, you know, up and, and then she walked herself into the bedroom. <laughs> she got into bed herself. She, you know, it's weird for family members to have somebody be so alive and then five minutes later, they've died. Do you think that having the person you've made makes it easier for families to process it or more difficult? I think easier. The feedback we get is that it's easier. It's easier afterwards. Yeah. You know, the leading up to it, it takes, you know, we just had a, a family member yesterday that said, once I wrapped my head around the whole concept of assisted dying and that my loved one was doing this, once I got to there and then then it made everything easier as it, compared to when their other parent had died type yeah. of thing. But that there is a, I think, a mental process that, that an emotional process that families have to go through to kind of kind of like, oh, wow, this is really happening. And, uh, and kind of sort through, how do I feel about this? And how, what, how am I going to kind of negotiate this? And how am I going to manage it? And, and most are, are super grateful to have had that, you know, because it's allowed them to spend time with their loved one. It's allowed them to, you know, say whatever they want to say. It's allowed them to make, you know, memories and, and so most expressed to us after the fact that it was very beneficial to them. Hi, Sherry. It's about 4.30 uh, my time. Uh, I wish you hadn't called for the reason you did, but uh, I am feeling fine. I, I did have a couple of bad days with the pain, but I think I handled it right by not going out or doing anything. And it was fine today. So... I told you not listening to me. I told you not to worry about me and that just to enjoy yourself. So do what I'm saying. I hope you continue to have a good time. Bye. Months after I initially did the reporting for this story, I went back and interviewed my mom again. I still didn't understand what it must have been like to grieve someone before they were gone. I was grieving that whole time because when she turned into what she turned into... That's not, you know, she was still there. You can hear it in the, the voicemail messages. She was still there, same person. But um, there's no way in hell that she would have ever wanted to, to look like what she looked like. And she certainly would never have wanted to feel that kind of pain. So I was, I just wanted her to have control. I, it was very important for her to have control. So... The grieving I was doing was had been going on for for sure the last year of her life. It was pretty continuous sense of grief. This might sound strange, but one of my favorite things about being Jewish is the funerals. I've always found them soothing. Every Jewish person is buried in the same kind of wooden casket, no embalming or cremation. Our bodies go back to the earth. We gather at the graveside and recite the mourner's Kaddish, a low, rhythmic murmur that has been recited in the same way for thousands of years. 
The casket is lowered, and each mourner has the opportunity to come forward and shovel some earth into the grave in a final goodbye. I've been to a lot of funerals for my age, but I never cried like I did at my grandma's. And the hollow thud of the earth falling on the casket never echoed so loudly in my ears. I thought about how special she was to me and how I didn't call her enough. I thought about a few days prior when she called me and asked me dozens of questions about my plans for the future. When would I graduate? Where would I work? Did I want to travel? And where did I think I would go? She sounded more awake and chipper than she had in months. It was only as I walked away from the graveside that I realized what that phone call was. It was her way of saying goodbye. And what a valuable thing it is to get to say goodbye on your own terms. To get to have those last few moments with them, to find out where they're going, knowing you won't get to go with them. I didn't know it at the time, but it was a gift for me and for her. I know with my brother that the kind of crying I did was a lot different. Um, like that, that quality of unfairness and horror that that could have happened to him and trying to get my head around the fact that he could be that unfortunate that his life would end that way at 43. But with her, when I say to myself, I miss her and I wish I could talk to her. I wish she was here. It's like, you know, the, the, the little white angel on one side and the little red angel on the other side and the white angel saying, oh, wouldn't it be wonderful if your mother was here and you could talk to her? And the red angel's responding, are you out of your mind? She couldn't have been here. It's wrong to think that. It's selfish to think that. She got what she wanted and she deserved to, to end her life the way she wanted. So, very different feeling. My goodbye was a surprise. She didn't want me to know what was happening, really. So, we had to say it without words, pretending everything was normal when we both knew it wasn't. But my mom's experience was entirely different. She was there for every step along the way, and then some. What did you do with the time that you had left with her once you knew that it was, like, definitively limited? Um, I was at her apartment to at least two times a day, sometimes three times a day. Like any excuse I could come up with. Oh, uh, how about I come over for coffee? And, uh, oh, it's lunchtime. Maybe I'll stop by for lunch. And, oh, I'm finished work now. I'm going to come for a drink. Like any excuse I could come up with, I went over there. So that became sort of more frantic as the, you know, as those last days were happening. So every single excuse. And, you know, she... She didn't want me to not be working or not be living my life. So it really did come across like, no, I've got a few minutes. How about I stop, how about I stop by? Yeah, you happen to be, you're going to die soon, but uh, how about I just stop by and say hello and let's have a drink. And 
right? So like it was all part of this, like she, and she needed that, like that, she did not, you know, we made jokes, I made jokes about her and so did my sister, like, you know, that old joke, like the queen of denial. My mother was absolutely the queen of denial. So as long as she could pretend that she was like her old self and, um, this was just another visit that that her daughter was making, then the better she would feel about it. So, right, she never said that, but it was clear that that's what she needed. So I just increased the amount of time that I was there. While I was away at school, my mom and her sister and their uncle watched in real time as my grandma disappeared. They watched the life force drain out of her as she became smaller, less present, less happy to be alive. They knew she couldn't stick around just because they wanted her to. And even when she canceled her first maid appointment at the last second, they knew it was only a matter of time because she just couldn't keep going on the way that she was, tethered to the earth only by her inability to say goodbye. If she hadn't pulled out of doing it the previous time, I think that night would have been different. That last 12 hours of her life for me would have been different. Um, more traumatic probably than the last 12 hours was the being sent out of the apartment and seeing the door closing with her, like peeking out the door um, and getting on the elevator and getting in the car and driving home and knowing that I wasn't going, I could, I may never see her again and that I wouldn't be with her when she died. That, that was probably worse than waiting the 12 hours to find out if she had done it. Do you remember, did you have any thoughts in that moment, like seeing the door close? Yeah. Um, we, had the, we had this thing in our family um, that I totally bought into, which is the, you've got to be strong, you got to be strong, you, you know, nobody, you know, if somebody else is trying to be strong, the worst thing you can do is, you know, fall apart. And with my mother, when, if, if, my sister or I had like collapsed into a sobbing mess in front of her that night. It, it would have been the wrong way to leave her. So I do remember the door closing and I remember her face behind the door. And I remember trying to keep myself from not looking stricken. I'm sure I looked stricken anyway, but you know, just bye and the door closing and and she waited until the elevator opened. Like that's what she always did, waited for the elevator door to open and then the door closed. So I, I sure remember what it felt like and it was one of many, many nights where I kept my composure because that was what she needed and then get in the car and disintegrate. When I talked to Kim Weeb, the doctor who did the maid procedure for my grandma, she told me that she often wishes she could have known her patients before they were sick. I've thought about this a lot. I did know my grandma before she was sick, of course, but we never got to be real people together. I never got to know her as she truly was in all the different versions of herself that she had been. But I found that in looking at this one decision she made for herself, to be in control, to have the opportunity to say goodbye the way her son never did, 
the way her mother chose not to. I got to see her more clearly than I ever did when I was growing up. She was just like me, this lucky, happy kid. But she had so much pain in her life. And that pain made her into the kind of person who was able to do this, not just for herself, but for the people around her. People are complicated, and grief, in all its forms, is complicated. But to feel grief is to feel love. Sitting at the big wooden dining table with a cup of coffee, watching three of the most important women in my life talk and bicker and laugh, I always felt surrounded by love. Now she's gone, and I'll never be in that apartment again. But I still get to drink coffee and talk and bicker and laugh with my mom and my friends, and maybe one day with my kids. And that is something to look forward to. Paradigm is presented by the Frequency Podcast Network. It's created by Annalisa Nielsen and me, Stephanie Phillips. This episode was produced by Emily Morantz. Sound design by Ryan Clark. Jada Jones is the author you heard from at the top of today's episode. You can find their new book, Master of One, anywhere books are sold. And finally, we want to give a special thanks to Kate Martin, Matthew Manville, and Zachary Rubin. Thanks so much for listening. If you're enjoying these stories, please let us know. You can write to us on Twitter at Frequency Pods, or you can rate the show and write a review in any podcast player that will allow it. 